one of the real perils of conspiracy theories is they distract people from the very real abuses that are happening all around us. Conspiracy theories have circulated around the U.S. for centuries, from the Freemasons and the Illuminati to Area 51 and 9-11. But over the past decade or two, they seem to have seeped into the mainstream consciousness like never before. This is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. I'm Satirius Johnson. Where do conspiracy theories come from? Are they actually more prevalent today? What are they doing to our democracy, and how can we avoid falling prey to them? Catherine Olmsted studies the impact of conspiracy theories on American society and politics. She's a professor of history at UC Davis and author of the book Real Enemies, Conspiracy Theories and American Democracy, World War I to 9-11. She's also written two previous books on secrecy in the U.S. government. Welcome to The Backdrop, Catherine. Thank you for having me. So before we get into it, can you define for us what a conspiracy theory is? Are there certain elements that need to be present for it to be a conspiracy theory? Uh, Yes. So there's a legal definition for conspiracy, and that is that two or more people get together in secret to do something illegal. So you have to have all of those elements. It has to be, you can't have a conspiracy of one. It's going to be at least two people. Uh, they need to do it in secret, and the impact needs to be negative in some way, that it's illegal or abusive. Um, And then a conspiracy theory is the belief that a conspiracy has occurred without proof. So (laughs) um, you can have a conspiracy theory that turns out to be true. It could be that the proof just hasn't surfaced yet. Um, But many times, of course, the conspiracy theories are, are not true. Right. And and that's what makes them so insidious, because people can turn around and say, this is actually happening, but we just don't have the evidence yet. So you can't really reason with someone who thinks like that. Right. And even worse is when you have evidence that it did not occur and they say, well, that evidence was faked. Right. So what makes a good or effective conspiracy theory? Are there certain attributes that can give a theory traction or is it really more that people are more susceptible to them under certain conditions in society? Well, certainly they seem to be more prevalent at times of societal stress, um, particularly when there's some sort of external crisis. So there were, for example, conspiracy theories about the Pearl Harbor attacks, about the John Kennedy assassination, about the 9-11 attacks. Whenever there's you know a massive uh, societal crisis, There are some people who then look to conspiracy theories to explain it. But in general, there are conspiracy theories uh, throughout time and across cultures. They're they're common all over the world and in all different eras. And talk about crisis or crises. We're in a moment in time right now where there are multiple things happening. The pandemic, uh, the downturn in the economy, social injustice, uh, the election, It kind of feels like conspiracy theories are coming at us fast and furiously lately. Uh, How did we get from having the occasional conspiracy theory like about Area 51 or the assassination of JFK to theories that make people question everything, our institutions, our electoral system, our news outlets? How have we gotten here? Well, I think there's a couple of things at play here. Uh, First of all, uh, since the 1960s, there have been uh, revelations of real government conspiracies like Watergate, like Iran-Contra, 
like the CIA assassination plots against uh, Fidel Castro, like CIA drug testing programs, like the FBI's surveillance of Martin Luther King. And so those revelations of real conspiracies then uh, feed conspiracy theories because a lot of Americans say, well, if it's proven that the government did all of these abusive things, then who's to say what else they've done that we just don't know about? So that is is one factor, and that's really the dynamic that I look at in my book, uh, Real Enemies, is the relationship between real government conspiracies and conspiracy theories about the government. Uh, more recently, I think the rise of, of social media is very important, even more so than just um, the development of the internet, because with social media, there's a lot of peer-to-peer sharing, and there's no gatekeepers to go through Anything that you see on your on your Facebook feed can seem as authoritative as something you read in the New York Times. And in fact, more people are are getting their information and news from social media sites than from traditional journalistic outlets like the New York Times or Network News. Right, exactly. And there's no system of fact checking or, or peer review. And in fact, uh, there's off, often a lot of people who are deliberately spreading misinformation for financial gain or for political purposes. So that's the thing. How can people not fall prey to conspiracy theories? Well, I think on an individual level, you have to uh, make the effort to check these theories that you hear uh, from friends or or on the internet. So there are fact-checking websites uh, like PolitiFact and FactCheck and Snopes that you can go to and put in the rumor that you've heard and instantly it will show you they have teams of reporters who are constantly um, looking into these conspiracy theories and they have stories that will tell you exactly where this theory came from and what about it is true and what about it is is untrue. So that's what you can do on an individual level. I think on a societal level, we really need to teach media literacy in the schools, particularly the high schools, so that um, our future voters become more sophisticated about telling fact from fiction. Well, today there are groups like QAnon, which proliferate some really bizarre and outrageous conspiracy theories. And even if they're legitimately disproven, some people still believe them. I feel like confirmation bias must play a role in that, where people are just blind to any information that doesn't jibe with their worldview or beliefs. Right, exactly. I mean, as a historian, I look at conspiracy theories in the past and how they change over time. Uh, But there are a lot of uh, psychologists and sociologists and political scientists who run experiments all the time to look at current conspiracy thinking. And uh, they what they've discovered is really quite depressing in that uh, it's very hard to get people to change their minds. It is possible to change the minds of people who are sort of toying with conspiracy theories. We might say, oh, I heard this and it sounds right. You can persuade that group of people, but when they really believe a conspiracy theory, you can give them all the evidence against it that you want. And it's almost impossible to change minds. Have you studied how people's trust in the mainstream media has changed over time? Yes. I mean, there's still a lot more trust in the mainstream media, believe it or not, than there is in the government. Uh, but it still, it has declined a lot over time. 
I mean, I feel like there's a part of the human psyche that leaves us vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Again, like people are trying to make sense of the world and create order out of chaos, but they can get caught up in connecting unrelated dots in a very misguided way or connecting dots that aren't even there. They aren't real. And and we live in a democratic society that values freedom of speech. So does that leave us in a more vulnerable position as a society to fall prey to conspiracy theories? Well, uh, that's a very good question. I mean, first of all, in um, responding to your suggestion that there's something uniquely human about the desire to believe in conspiracy theories, that is what social psychologists have found. They say that uh, we are hardwired to look for patterns. And so uh, conspiracy theories thus appeal to people on a visceral level where we want things to make sense. And so we prefer to construct a conspiracy theory than to believe that there were um, these random events that led to very bad outcomes, because that's terribly frightening. You know, you prefer order to chaos, even if the if the particular order that you're looking for means that there is this evil group of people in charge, at least somebody's in charge. Right. Um, and you know, I'm trying to remember what was your second point. <laughs> I guess, are we more vulnerable as a society because we value free speech? Yeah. Right. So, yes, I think we are more vulnerable. I mean, there are conspiracy theories even in uh, cultures where there's not as much freedom of speech, but certainly in America, because there is this um, you know, desire to always err on the side of listening to every perspective and giving everyone a respectful treatment and believing that it is necessary to um, air all kinds of different views as a result, it makes it easier for people who are deliberately lying to to get a hearing. So the onus, again, is on individuals to seek out the right information, which, again, can take some time and effort. Right, exactly. I mean, some of the social media companies are now trying to, to start uh, banning or deleting information that is clearly, uh, you know, leads to destructive consequences. But you know, it's it's a very small effort com- uh, compared to the, the magnitude of the problem. I was wondering if you could go through for us uh, a couple of conspiracy theories, maybe one that was debunked and one that turned out to be true. All right. Sure. Um, one conspiracy theory that I think is pretty widely de- debunked, although you can certainly still find people who believe it, would be the uh, conspiracy theory about the Pearl Harbor attacks in 1941. Okay. So this is originally a theory that arose on the extreme right uh, among people who believe that the United States should not be fighting Nazi Germany. And so uh, they had been vehement opponents of Franklin Roosevelt's foreign policy before the Pearl Harbor attacks, and they became convinced that he had somehow... Uh, maneuvered the Japanese into attacking and deliberately withheld that information from the commanders at Pearl Harbor. So it was very much an anti-Roosevelt, anti-internationalist, anti-progressive theory that was on the extreme right. And then in the 1970s, after Watergate, suddenly it started appealing to a lot of people on the left who used it as an example of uh, the president always lies. 
we have Democratic presidents lying, we have Republican presidents lying, Roosevelt lied about Pearl Harbor. And as a result, there was a lot of historical attention to that. And I think a lot of historians have put a tremendous amount of effort into proving that that was just not true. So that has pretty much died, partly because of the efforts of historians and also partly because it's just, you know, people aren't as interested in what happened in 1941 anymore. As far as a a theory that proved to be true, uh, you know, the good example would be Watergate. I mean, uh, Bob Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post essentially had a conspiracy theory that there was this um, group in the White House that was acting illegally. And a lot of people thought that they were uh, being ridiculous and that they were drawing connections that were not there. And it turned out to be true. And not only did it turn out to be true? It turned out that there was taped evidence of this conspiracy a- occurring with the president personally involved. And so that is a rare example of a conspiracy theory turning out to be true. Of course, because that conspiracy theory turned out to be true, there were a lot of people after Watergate who said, aha, there must be many more conspiracies that we just haven't uncovered yet. What's been your biggest challenge in studying conspiracy theories? I wouldn't say that I've had challenges in studying conspiracy theories. I've had some challenges in teaching conspiracy theories because I need to make sure (laughs) that I am not being disrespectful of my students, um, that I want them all to come into the classroom with open minds and be willing to accept that maybe the conspiracy theories that they believed in are not true. But also I want them, the people at the other end of the spectrum to have open minds about there might be reasons for some of their classmates to believe in conspiracy theories and uh, that not all conspiracy theory theorists are just raving lunatics. And so it's, it's always difficult to strike that balance. Hmm. I have found that students in UC Davis though, uh, really, are amazing and they pass that test every time. I'm always nervous at the beginning of the quarter when I teach conspiracy theories that this time is when it's it's not going to work. This time is when everybody's going mm. to be very polarized and hostile and dismissive of one another. Um, but I, I have had success over the last 15 years in, in getting over that hump and convincing everyone um, to have open minds in the classroom. What are some of the reasons that people might have to believe in conspiracy theories? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons to believe in anti-government conspiracy theories, or at least to find them plausible, because the government has over time conspired. And sometimes as there are people within the government who have uh, committed crimes and tried to cover up those crimes or abuse their power. So Watergate and Iran-Contra would be uh, two major examples. So there are a lot of Americans who take those examples and then, you know, take them too far and say, therefore, you can't trust anything that the government ever does. But I think it's important to um, empathize with them and understand where they're coming from, because that's the only way we're going to be able to combat these theories. I kind of feel like a lot of people are losing hope in society just because It seems like we're being bombarded with conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory and lie after lie. As you've studied conspiracy theories over the last century, 
is there hope that these things will always be debunked and that a sizable part of society won't be swayed by them? I mean, is there hope? Well, if I didn't have hope, I wouldn't study this anymore. It would be way too depressing if I thought uh, <laughs> things are just going to get worse. I, I, I do have hope. Um, it does take a lot of energy, though, um, and because we all need to make the effort to sort of search out what is the true information and what is the misinformation. How did you become interested in conspiracy theories? Well, it, my interest in conspiracy theories um, grew out of my first book, in particular, the public reaction to my first book. So back in 1996, I published my dissertation. It was called Challenging the Secret Government. And it was about the investigations by Congress and the press of the CIA and FBI after Watergate. So the most uh, famous of these investigations was um, by Frank Church, who was a senator from Idaho. His investigation was called the Church Committee. And there were other congressional investigations. And at the same time, there were many journalists who were dedicated to exposing abuses of power by the FBI and the CIA. Uh, the most famous being uh, Seymour Hersh, who at that time was at the New York Times, and Daniel Shore, who was at CBS News. And so I wrote a book about these investigators of the secret government. And I published it with an academic press, the University of North Carolina Press. So it wasn't exactly sold in airport bookstores. <laughs> but I started receiving phone calls and mail from people all over the United States who had read it and who were very eager to tell me about their um, experiences with secret agencies of the U.S. government. And most of these stories were um, completely untrue, were the people who, you know, perhaps needed medication adjustments, who believed that the CIA was always following them. But then some of them turned out to be uh, true, or at least highly plausible, about how they had gone to various anti-war demonstrations, and now they had an FBI file. And so they were very worried about government surveillance. And so I came to be very interested in this relationship between the, the democratic accountability in the U.S. government, the eventual revelation of these secret government abuses, and the way that they then inspired a lot of conspiracy theories about the government. So I started working on uh, a book that looked at conspiracy theories in U.S. history starting in World War I, because it was at that time that the U.S. government began to get big enough and to have um, secret ag agencies that were powerful enough that Americans started having widespread conspiracy theories about their government. So I looked at how these conspiracy theories about the government evolved over time and then ending up with a chapter on 9-11. Um, in a way, it sounds like some of these conspiracy theories come from a good place, you know, and wanting to hold government accountable, but then certain people or groups can harness them to manipulate people to their own ends. Well, sometimes you will have uh, a public official who finds it beneficial to uh, spread these conspiracy theories. So Senator Joe McCarthy in the 1950s would be a good example of this. He charged that communists had infiltrated 
the Truman administration because this benefited him politically and it benefited his party. Uh, And he didn't find any communist spies personally at all, but he got a lot of fame or notoriety at the time by alleging these conspiracy theories. Uh, At present, we have a president who spreads these conspiracy theories in a very instrumental way, I believe, uh, in ways that he thinks will benefit him politically. So sometimes you have public officials who deliberately manipulate this uh, fear or this anxiety in the American public that there are forces conspiring against them. Also, sometimes there are uh, people who have financial gain in spreading conspiracy theories, like Alex Jones uh, on his uh, website, InfoWars, can sell you lots of supplements. He can earn a lot of money by spreading these conspiracy theories. So when you have these individual actors who see benefits for themselves in spreading conspiracy theories, then uh, you get, of course, a much, um, they have much more reach with their, um, if they're a senator or a president, or if they have a popular website. And that's the thing. I mean, with the Internet and social media, almost anyone can have a platform that reaches billions of people. So it can gain traction and even end up in mainstream media, which can then seem to validate totally outlandish ideas. Right. So it is much easier now to spread these these theories. I mean, I start out with uh, my book with World War One. When there was a a group of uh, Americans who were convinced there was a capitalist conspiracy to get the United States into World War I, and they they wrote up their concerns in a leaflet, and they had a hand-cranked printing press, and they published these leaflets, and then they went to Manhattan, they stood on top of a building, and they dropped these leaflets on people's heads. Um, That was their distribution method. Um, (laughs) So obviously now uh, it's much easier. You can get your own YouTube channel or whatever and and spread your theories instantly. Well, at least now some of the social media companies like Facebook and Twitter are beginning to to deal with this, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, Twitter is posting warning labels on some misleading tweets and Facebook is removing some questionable posts. But again, the onus is on individual people and the sources of information they rely on, right? That's definitely true. And it's also true that there are more sources of misinformation out there. So it's a lot easier to um, find these alternative facts. And what I, what I, and I put that in quotation marks, of course, Right. what I, what I find a lot with my students too, is that um, some of them can take pride in searching out alternative sources of information because they feel somehow that this is more legitimate if they find something on YouTube or um, that's not at all fact-checked or peer-reviewed, they feel like they have personally looked for these um, answers and that they've done detective work. And so therefore, what they've discovered is more valid than if they read it in a, in a peer-reviewed publication or in legacy media. It's almost like they discovered it themselves, like they conducted a little investigation. Or right, something. exactly. It's like pride of ownership. Like, I know the answer. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of admirable that people are searching, but when they're looking in the wrong place, they're ending up with the wrong answer. Right, exactly. And if you end up with the wrong answer, um, then you're not asking the right questions. 
anymore because you've been convinced. I mean, one of my favorite quotes about conspiracy theories is by the novelist Thomas Pynchon, who said, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about answers. (laughs) And I think that is one of the real perils of conspiracy theories is they distract people from the very real abuses that are happening all around us. So just to wrap up briefly, what can people do to make sure they don't fall prey to conspiracy theories? Well, there are three sites on the internet that I know of that are great fact-checking sites that you can go to snopes.com, politifact.com, and factcheck.org. And they all um, are staffed with teams of reporters that are constantly looking into the truth or falsity of these rumors or conspiracy theories. In general, I would say look for sources that are reputable and look for several different sources to um, fact check whatever information you have. And don't just accept what your uncle posts on Facebook um, (laughs) because it agrees with your own political views. It, It takes a lot of effort to be a citizen in a democracy, especially these days. You have to have to work at making sure you're fully informed. Um, But I have confidence that people can do that. Well, that's really great advice. Catherine, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on today. All right. Thank you. Catherine Olmsted studies the impact of conspiracy theories on American society and politics. She's a professor of history at UC Davis and author of the book Real Enemies, Conspiracy Theories and American Democracy, World War I to 9-11. Find out more about Catherine Olmsted's research on our website, ucdavis.edu slash the-backdrop-podcast. You can listen and subscribe to The Backdrop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Satirius Johnson, and this is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas.